On this episode, we discuss how Adam Savage built Iron Man armor, how Nintendo may have moved their manufacturing to another country, and SP is ready to bust holes in an MH370 conspiracy theory article. Plus, we say farewell to Hangouts On Air. This and more in this week's show. I'm Anthony Bachman from All Things Good and Nerdy, a geeky podcast part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other fantastic geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Here, we're a bunch of geeks talking about geeky things. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Steven. But what if I'm in the mood for a T-Swift story? Chris. I've heard the X is going to give it to you. And SP. That's how we roll on Gunna Geek on Monday night. We get crazy! Gunna Geek Productions presents the official GunnaGeek.com show. Welcome to an all-new episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. I am Stephen John Drew, and I am pleased to say that the wonderful, the fantastic, he's off the market now, Chris Farrell's here. And much like the new Joker movie, I'm rated R. And also rated R, but it's an R, is Stargate Pioneer. Is it really Talk Like a Pirate Day? No, again? no, but I'm pretty sure that you are the pirate of this podcast. He's a space pirate. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, funny enough, though, my wife just took my daughter on a cruise down to the Caribbean and they went, I believe, to Grand Turk and they got off the boat there and then they were just sampling the town and everything. And so my wife comes back in the next morning. She's like, what is this? And it was a shirt that she bought for me. It was a pirate shirt, a yellow pirate shirt. I'm not wearing it today, but I did wear it during one of the podcasts last week. And she turned to my daughter. She's like, who's this for? It's for your dad. It's for, it's for dad. And she's like, really? I don't remember that. She's like, oh yeah, you were, you were pretty, uh, mm, pretty <laughs> sauce when you did that. For the audio listener, SP was making the drinky drinky symbol. Mm. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear you have a new shirt to go with your new to you vehicle that you spoke about last week, which for those of you who missed that episode, SP did a great job of reviewing a vehicle and some geeky features with it. And I think it's the first time we've ever reviewed a vehicle on this show, which is why SP totally forgot something that he meant to talk about. And he definitely didn't learn about this past week. So we've definitely not allocated this time because it just came up. It's entirely missed. So I discovered <laughs> this past week. I'm going to be honest about this. I discovered this past week. I'm like, one of the things that I mentioned about the CarPlay is that it only had like three screens available for the options for the amount of podcasts or playlists or songs that you're trying to scroll through. Well, I didn't realize that's when the car was moving. And uh, as you would expect, you wouldn't want a lot of options on there so that you get distracted and go on the uh, screen and you th scroll through. But if you're stopped, not if you're in park, although that works too, but if you're stopped, all the options come on. So that's pretty neat that it's integrated in the car. It recognizes when it's at zero miles per hour, the brakes are on and it's stopped or it's in park and you can see the entire 
list of possibilities. So yeah, that's really cool with the CarPlay. It will do that. So I, last week I mentioned you only had three screens. This week I'm saying if you're stopped, you have all the options. So the summary of this is that we got a little bit to go before we become a motoring show. Is that correct? If you really want to become a motoring show, that's great. But the first car that I get to review is a nondescript four by four crew cab <laughs> pickup truck. Oh, uh, well, Chris Farrell, as the resident Apple user here, I know you're very disappointed in his ability to review Apple CarPlay. I think you're talking about Chris Farrell, who hosts the Gunna Gear show, which is all about vehicles. I'm Chris Farrell on the Gunna Geek show. I like geek. that. Different Chris Farrell. We have the same names. We look remarkably similar, but I'm the evil twin. Okay, fair enough. So uh, obviously this is not Gunna Gear, uh, which could weirdly be a podcast gear show as well. There's all sorts of things. So maybe that's the name that we should switch to. Well, rebranding couldn't hurt anything, right? <laughs> I'm buying the domain name right now, and I'm making my spinoff show that is a parody of this show. It's going to be riff tracks of each week's Gunna Geek show. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> well, all kidding aside, I know that I set up this little discussion point here through a joke. Uh, yes, SP did just discover this this past week, and the thing is, it's new to him, so he'll keep us up to date because none of us here have ever used CarPlay before, but if he sees anything, however... If there's something that you want to highlight to him about CarPlay, please get in touch with him. The best way is probably on Twitter at Stargate Pioneer and let him know what he should explore with this because it is something that uh, I know he's learning. He'd love to talk a little bit more about it. And maybe one day Chris and I will have something with Android Auto and we can talk about that as well. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Maybe this summer slash fall. Hmm. In the meantime, we'll go ahead and continue on with the usual geeky format. Unless, of course, nondescript 4x4, you want to sponsor the show. We'll, go, we'll sell out for an episode. We got no problem with that. They're going to go and do that for Top Geek, not for, <laughs> for going to gear. You are full of them tonight, as our Chris Farrell, and I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Let's go ahead and move on to something not car-related. Oh! <gasps> Longtime listeners and viewers of the show are probably familiar with the topic that we're just about to talk about right now. It's something that uh, a certain member of this show has been following for a while and we've talked about for a little while. And there's a bit of an update, perhaps. And that's the MH370, right, SP? Yeah, a couple of days ago on The Atlantic in their magazine for July of 2019, it was actually a cover on the magazine for July 2019, they had a story of what really happened to Malaysia's missing airplane. We're talking about Malaysia Airlines MH370, which disappeared the night of March 8th, 2014. We're allegedly, supposedly thinking that it was somewhere off the west coast of Australia and really, really, really deep Indian Ocean water. And yeah, there's been a lot of speculation on what's happened to it because the wreckage has never been found, the actual main body of the wreckage or anybody from the plane, either uh, alive or deceased. So the Atlantic published this definitive article 
on Malaysia's MH370. Let me step you through a couple of things about it. It went through the fact that when it finally descended through the satellite data, it was descending at 15,000 feet per minute, which is really, really fast. And that it went into the tail of this man, Blaine Gibson, who really has been integral in the entirety of what they found so far. And you're like, who is this guy? Well, he's just an adventurer, a traveler. And he became interested in this because it was basically an unsolved mystery. I mean, he looked into finding the lost Ark of the Covenant and the lost what happened to the lost Mayan civilization, stuff like that. So this was really intriguing to him. He was living off his parents' inheritance. He's an older man. He was living off of his parents' inheritance, didn't really do much with his life aside from being an adventurer. And he ended up selling his mom's house and used those funds to fund a couple of extra trips. One of the things that he wanted to do with his life is visit every single country in the world. And this was ticking off some boxes. So that kind of helped too. One of the things he did is he met everybody at one of the reunions and then just became so enthralled with their stories. He said, well, there's got to be something I can do. He looked around. One of the things that he personally was looking at was the discovery of washed up uh, debris from the crash. So he's actually personally responsible for about a third of what's been recovered and identified as part of the Malaysian MH370 777 that has crashed. So it has been determined that the 777 crashed somewhere in the Indian Ocean and a lot of the debris has washed up on the African coast somewhere like Madagascar, stuff like that. Well, because he's personally responsible for going to these beaches and finding the debris, there's actually a phenomenology which is called the Gibson effect which is that there's no way to determine how the debris has actually flowed across the ocean because it might be skewed to where Gibson was able to travel and scour the shores and find the debris and identify the debris as possibly part of the 777 that went down. So that was interesting to know that you can't really map the debris flow and field from what has been found because it was centered on where Blaine actually went. So that was interesting to learn. And here's where the article gets a little kooky. So we'll have to go into some sort of conspiracy corner to talk about these next things, because the article actually went through and actually listed a lot of the main conspiracies for this, one of which was a British woman who was blogging, and she said that the night the MH370 disappeared, they were in the sea and she spotted what looked like a cruise missile coming at her. Uh, okay. And, and she just claimed that was MH370. So that kind of skewed where the plane actually was versus the satellite data, which definitively showed where it was. And there is an Australian who's been claiming for several years to have found the MH370 by means of photographs from Google Earth. And it looks like the plane is in shallow waters and intact. A couple of years ago, I remember seeing these photos. There's no conclusive act on that, but he claims to have seen that. He refuses to disclose the location and he's working on crowdfunding for an expedition to go find it. I seriously doubt that's the case, but it could be. That's actually one that could be. 
Although I would think that if he disclosed the location that the government would have sent a boat over or something and just seen if there was metal on the bottom or not, but maybe he hasn't. Another conspiracy theory is based with a New York writer named Jeff Wise, and he has hypothesized that the electronic systems on board the airplane were reprogrammed to provide false data and that the plane actually ended up in some Kazakhstani field and is either being camouflaged or I guess peace parted out by now and in Kazakhstan, which I don't believe happened, but eh, some people do, right? So here's where I have an issue. The no, article, none of those you have an issue with, though, just to be clear. I do have I do have, some, <laughs> I I do have some issues with that. So okay, I'm going, okay. uh, once again, I'm going with the satellite data because I'm pretty confident in the numbers there. The article does go into, well, people that don't understand the satellite data and the Doppler effect and the numbers that went into it, they come up with these theories and they go with these theories. I tend to think that the people that were regressing the satellite data know what they're talking about because actually some really smart people did it and I trust them. So yeah, probably not. And that's why the governments have spent tens of millions of dollars searching for this on the bottom of the sea to the west of Australia is because there was kind of definitive proof that it was there, but we just can't find exactly where it is. So here's the issue. So the article goes into in depth in blaming the pilot and saying it's got to have been the pilot. He was on a suicide run. There was a trial run on his home flight simulator, which had a remarkably similar flight path. And he was mentally unstable. He was getting divorced. He was alone. He was communicating, reaching out through social media to some models that didn't respond. He was depressed. Okay, that's all true. But it doesn't mean that he definitively is the problem that happened here. Around the time that this happened, there were several articles about Boeing 777 having cockpit wiring fires. This could have led to the exact situation that MH370 was in. Now, did that happen? I don't know. Did the pilot actually commit suicide and take everybody with him? Possibly. But you can't definitively say that the pilot was the reason for all this. Matter of fact, the pilot might have gone through some heroic times trying to save the plane and the crew so you just can't reach out and blame the pilot like the atlantic did there's just no proof either way so it's not the definitive article and there's some other things in the article that are wrong too or at least i can refute but it's entertaining in its theories but it's definitely not the definitive work on the mh370 tragedy in my opinion so what you're saying is that contrary to how we set this up, this is not really an update on MH370. Is that is that correct? That is correct. The update is that the Atlantic was just trying to sell publications and subscriptions, probably. And they do a wonderful job of putting a story and then they put a person at the center of it that is singularly responsible for defining the fact that it actually crashed in the southern Indian Ocean. Okay. And I got to you get to know a little bit more about Blaine Gibson and his contributions, which are not minor, but it's not definitive. So at least, though, there's a lot of false information. We know that there isn't like podcasters taking that false information and highlighting it on a podcast or anything like that. Right. 
Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, I think it is important, though, to talk about things like this so that people can realize that not everything that we see is uh, is necessarily the truth. And uh, you should always take things with a grain of salt. And uh, it's important because we talked a few weeks ago about the whole uh, we had Suncast on here to talk about the whole Joe Rogan faking thing. There's now an Arnold Schwarzenegger little uh, fake video where they turn um uh, Bill Hader, I think it does his name Bill Hader into Arnold Schwarzenegger video back and forth through Conan and because he's doing an Arnold impression and it's really impressive. So, you know, things like this just help highlight that uh, don't believe everything you see because we are he- heading into a very, very interesting technological era, era and who knows if it's an error. So, you know, you don't know. It could be fake. Fake, SP. See? Fake. You're telling me Elvis Presley isn't actually alive and hanging out with Bigfoot like the uh, National Enquirer was telling me a few weeks ago. No, no, that's real. That's real. He was there. He was there with uh, the Ogopogo, which is a reference that only a small percentage of Canadians will get, I think. Or is that? No. Uh, the Loch Ness Monster, Monster. That's a little bigger reference. There you go. I heard Elvis is a big fan of Top Geek. Yes, I heard about that, too. Uh, you know mm-hmm. who else is a big fan of Top Geek is uh, Adam Savage. Yes, uh, Adam Savage is a fan of all sorts of different geeky and nerdy things. He's a common household name to a lot of folks, in part because he was a longtime co-host on the Mythbusters show, came back and did Mythbusters Kids. He works on the Tested channel on YouTube doing Adam Savage's One Day Builds, things like that. Adam has a relationship with the Discovery Channel, which he has parlayed into an eight-episode miniseries called Savage Builds. So what happens in this? Well, on each of the episodes... He basically goes out and builds something crazy, consults with experts and other builders, and it just started airing on Discovery Channel. So why am I talking about it? Because he went big for episode one. I finally got to watch the whole thing this weekend. Adam Savage, with the assistance of the rest of the folks that are part of his team, made his own Iron Man Mark II suit of armor. Now you're probably sitting there going, oh, it's no big deal. Anyone can make a plastic suit of Iron Man armor. Well, yeah, it's titanium. It can also fly. So. It, it it's not quite simple. It's also bulletproof and explosion proof. So how did this all come about? He got permission from Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios to actually make this suit as part of the television show. That permission also involved them being allowed to use footage from Iron Man 1, predominantly of Tony Stark suiting up and the Mark II suit in action. Marvel also provided the 3D blueprints and drawings of the Mark II suit that was used on set so that they could then go and recreate it. How did they recreate it? They did something I didn't even know was possible. They 3D printed the bulk of this suit out of titanium. Yes, you can 3D print titanium. Adam goes into the details on this show about how they do it. Effectively, they have a powdered version of titanium that they lay out on a metal plate, and then they take a laser to it to solidify it. And then they just keep building up layer by layer by layer until they have a titanium Iron Man armor piece. So how did this all turn out? He legit made most of his armor out of titanium. Some things like the the boots they made out of a printable nylon because he'd be able to stand in that better. And they also did not make an actual arc reactor. They used a transparent ceramic piece with a light behind it so that you could see Tony Stark's chest light up in the costume. But what did they do in this suit? Well, Adam said he wanted to make it as close to legit as possible. They riveted the whole thing together. They punched holes in titanium, riveted the whole thing together, and it is pretty much a one-to-one replica of what you saw on set for Iron Man 2. 
when they rated it together, what did they do? Adam shot it with three different firearms, a 22 millimeter, a nine millimeter. And I can't remember the final one he used. He went and took a rifle and pretty much showed that if you, the 22, the bullet just bounced off, no damage. And then there was just a very minor, minor dent associated with the next two rounds in his Iron Man suit of armor. The ballistics gel dummy behind it was unscathed. It was scathed when the one bullet exploded and shrapnel got stuck in its neck. So they did prove that you might need some neck protections. <laughs> but the chest piece of a titanium Mark II suit of Iron Man armor successfully repelled bullets. They then blew things up in front of it to see if Iron Man armor could protect you from shock. It seemed like it could protect you from the shockwave of explosions at certain distances. I don't remember the exact distances, but you can go and watch it on Adam's uh, show. And then finally, you can't have a suit of Iron Man armor unless you can find a way to make it fly. Oh, he wait enlisted a minute, the wait help a of... Yes? Did he use a trebuchet? <laughs> he did not use a trebuchet, but what he did oh, do is... Re did, did he reach out to the flat earthers who have the rocket-powered car thing? It's exactly what he did. No, <laughs> but what he actually did is he reached out to a man named Richard Browning, who is the uh, founder of Gravity Industries, who is known for designing and flying his own jetpack. This jetpack consists of basically jet engines that mount to a person's hands, and they find the right way to find balance, and using their hands, they're able to fly, maneuver forward and backwards, things like that. Adam tried to learn how to fly properly in this rig. He got pretty close, and in the end, he realized, I am not the right person to fly this Iron Man suit, because he wasn't a great flyer, and a 25-pound suit of titanium armor and other things Probably not great to do. In the end, Richard Browning did successfully fly the Iron Man Mark II armor with his jetpack, proving that Adam could make an Iron Man suit that is kind of close to what Tony Stark had. But for, from Adam's point of view, he'd always talked about building an Iron Man suit of armor, he said on the show. I can't think of a better way to do it than to build one that can stand up to bullets, explosions, can fly, is made out of metal, and not plastic ones like you see cosplayers make. That's not to say plastic ones are bad or anything like that, but the craftsmanship behind making a 3D printed titanium Iron Man suit of armor is incredible. I can't wait to see some of the other stuff he's building on this show. They talked about a Mad Max vehicle, revisiting some World War II weaponry that catastrophically failed to see whether they could do that. If this is something that interests you and you want to see it, it's on Discovery Channel on Friday nights here in the United States, I believe at 10 p.m. right after BattleBots. However, if you don't have Discovery Channel or you are a streamer, I guess it is available for free in the United States for the next two weeks on the Discovery Channel website. Uh, it's really cool. If you want something to scratch that itch of them building things on Mythbusters and then trying to blow them up and shoot them and things like that, it's totally worth seeing. It also scratches that itch of being a Marvel fan and seeing something recreated on the small screen that you've come to love on the big screen. So kudos to Adam for pulling off the build and for all the interesting stuff he's going to get to build now. I'm really jealous. Yeah, this is really, really cool. When you put this article in the document that we uh, work with behind the scenes, I was really fascinated to read it and see, you know, what's on here. I don't know that it's actually, unfortunately, the Discovery Channel Canada has a lot of difference in programming than Discovery Channel US. And so like Mythbusters, when it was on, it was always like months later and we never got the full season. So I don't know if this is available up here, but I might have to, uh, oh, find a way, maybe, uh, you know, make a trip down to the States or something like that to, uh, to watch it. Virtual trip to the States. Uh, yes. Uh, so I really, you can, you can make an actual trip to the States. It's not that far away from it. That's true. That's true. But, but, uh, 
It's really neat to see. I'm glad he's doing the show. Uh, you know, I've really enjoyed what he's done online, and it's nice to see him back on the Discovery Channel. Did Adam Savage manage to build the repulsors? He did not build repulsors, but if you go and look at the gauntlets they built, they were designed so that you see like the, the repulsor design in the hand and things like that. And he actually at one point does a pose and says, hey, special effects guy, put in the blast here and starts doing that. <laughs> so and, and I guess I should also clarify, they they sort of cheat at the end with the jetpack because of the way the jetpack connects to the arms, the uh, Richard could not Richard Browning, the pilot could not actually wear the titanium gauntlets because he had to actually be able to fit his hands in the the jets that are fitted to the forearms. So he did not appear to be wearing the Iron Man gloves or gauntlets when he was doing the flight test. But still, that's pretty cool that he made it fly. You know, it probably wasn't that easy to walk around in either, was it? It did not look like it. I mean, I was surprised when Adam said it was only 25 pounds worth of material, that whole suit. That was what really surprised me. Well, I can't wait to see what else is going to be on the show and uh, really, really neat. I uh, can't wait to see what other people do with it as well, because, you know, now that someone's done it famously, there's going to be a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy to see him back into this. Moving on to the next news point here, a little bit of an update about the Nintendo Switch. So for a little while there, the Nintendo Switch was a very hot selling item. Still is. A very popular game console slash handheld game device. And it's looking like we might be getting a couple other versions of the Nintendo Switch. The Wall Street Journal just put out a report that has apparently, quote, confirmed, again, it's all allegedly, that Nintendo has actually moved the manufacturing of these new consoles to Southeast Asia instead of being in China because of potential concerns over that U.S. tariff thing going on. We won't get into that too much. However, the purpose of this report also ended up highlighting the fact that uh, these production models are apparently being created there alongside of the current version being moved down there as well, again, for the tariff reason or whatever. But the new systems that are being created is going to have a similar form factor to the existing Switch model, but there's going to be a little bit different components inside, and then the other one will actually look apparently quite different and have lesser specs. So essentially, an updated model of the Switch and a dumbed-down model of the Switch with the dumbed one being a different look altogether. I guess the concept behind that potential model is the idea that they can appeal to people who can't afford the Switch right now if they can make it a little less expensive. We've seen that work in other consoles and other devices as well where they've gone and stripped things down and changed the look and it's still sold for people who are pretty much happy. Really interesting to see what happens. But yeah, this Wall Street Journal article does say that this is happening right now. It is important to note that Nintendo declined to comment when approached by the Wall Street Journal. So we cannot say for sure whether or not this is happening. Chris Farrell, what do you know about this? Because you are the gamer here. So it's interesting because this story has been floating around for about the past two months right now that Nintendo is making two different versions of the Switch and thinks similar to what Microsoft has done with their consoles. You have the Xbox One S, which is basically the baseline model, and the Xbox One X. And that was similar to the model Nintendo would be doing. One high-end switch that could do slightly better graphics and things like that, and then pretty much the current one we have. 
The rumor then morphed into another thing that they were making a cheaper version of the Switch that would have no docking capabilities that is literally just a handheld console that would be, say, half the price of a regular Switch so that you could appeal to the lower end of the budget, but you don't have all the capabilities of the larger one. But the problem is, these have all just been rumors. Uh, the, what Wall Street Journal has here is the same things I was seeing on Reddit about a month ago. So it's nothing new. Everyone's just hazarding a guess. And Nintendo, in typical fashion, has been awful quiet about what's going on. It would not surprise me if we see a hardware refresh. I wouldn't be shocked to see a new Switch that has a slightly bigger screen with less bezels, potentially 1080p in handheld mode. But I don't think we're going to get anything that really pushes the envelope graphically or anything like that. I, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. The fact that Nintendo said nothing at Nintendo Direct before E3, said nothing at E3, those are the times you would think you would announce something like this. But if they're going to do it, it's got to come out in the holiday season. Maybe we'll find something out, say, a couple months from now, two, three months from now, so they can say, hey, coming in December or November, if you want a new Switch, here's what you can get. Or maybe that's the new Switch that comes out with Pokemon in a bundle. I, I have no idea. Nintendo is awful quiet and nobody knows for sure. You know, the reason I wanted to actually highlight this in specific, because, yeah, I had heard the rumors about it before. I think you guys mentioned it actually on ATGN a couple of weeks back um, or in passing or something like that, is this Wall Street Journal idea or article about them shifting production might shed some light on a potential reason why you haven't heard anything yet, because maybe they're still wrapping up the legal paperwork or, you know, essentially getting their ducks in a row to officially announce the switch of production over to another location. There could be something holding them back right now from giving that announcement that it's in their best interest interest to not say anything at the moment until that's fully set up in the new location. So it's just one theory that I made up, totally made up, made up by me to consider why we could possibly have not heard about it yet, but it actually be happening. I don't know. I, I, like you said, it's been going on a while. The shift in production locations makes sense, though. We've talked about on this show and other shows before that when it comes to hardware, there's very, very thin margins there. And in some cases, maker console makers sell a console at a loss to try and make money on the back end on video games. So if tariffs come into play against China, your manufacturing in China, that cuts into your margins. So them to move production out of China, it's smart. It makes sense. You're probably going to see a lot of other tech companies starting to explore that to kind of dodge these upcoming tariffs. So that makes sense to me. It's just a matter of who knows what additional versions of the Switch there's going to be. The rumors keep floating. That there's two, potentially two new versions, and then they'll keep making the current one. We'll see. I don't know. Take every rumor with a grain of salt at this point in time, because nobody confirms anything yet. SP, are you going to go ahead and buy a Switch if they make a cheaper one? I don't know about the cheaper one, but I'll tell you, both my son and I were talking about getting one. I went to a family event Saturday night, and one of the kids, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years old, had one. He was playing Fortnite on it and just sitting on the floor playing it. And it was the first time I actually had a chance to be close to one out in the wild being used and everything. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Can you port the Fortnite into an actual set-top box console like an Xbox or something? And he's like... Well, yeah, but I don't have one of those. I'm like, dude, don't worry about it because that looks awesome. And he was all hyped up that I thought it was great and everything because I did. I, it was great actually seeing it out in the open and then seeing it out in the open and actually 
needing to have something like that when I'm out and about, maybe if I'm traveling or something, that would be pretty cool to have one of those. I don't know how, how much I'd use it. My son wants to use it to play this new Pokemon game that you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It looks really good. So it'd be really interesting. You enjoy the tech of how things work and how they how they make electronics work well. There's uh, Digital Foundry did some really cool deep dives onto how they got Fortnite to work on the Switch and what graphical compromises there may or may not have been. It's a fascinating watch, and it's like 20, 25 minutes long where they compare the graphics on similar things on the Switch to the Xbox to the PlayStation and say, here's how we think they did it. it it's totally worth checking out without fully compromising the Fortnite game too, which is really cool. Hilariously, I actually also just had my first in the wild encounter with one this past week and as well, it was actually yesterday and uh, it was over at my dad's. He's got one. And uh, I got to say, um, I was really impressed with it overall, but the joy cons are, are ridiculously smaller than I really realized. I, I think they're absolutely terrible for somebody with bigger hands like myself. So I was really disappointed in those. I was so glad it was my kids playing it, not me. Because they, they were using one each to play Mario Kart. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, they're, they're small, small. That's not the way to play Mario Kart. But it, the Joy-Cons are not really bad when you're playing in handheld mode because it works mm -hmm. then. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Well, moving on to the extra, extra section here. Let's talk a little bit here with a bit of a news point about Hangouts on Air. Roll the tears right now. For those of you not familiar with Hangouts on Air, Hangouts on Air is a video service that's been around for a long time with Google. The concept behind it was that people could hop into what's called a, a Hangout, which is essentially a chat room, so to speak. Everybody just connects and they're able to broadcast that live. So it was really easy to do. Everybody just gets into this really simple to use connection service and then they are out to the Internet. Originally, Hangouts on Air was tied into the infamous the now multi-billion user service google plus oh wait google plus is shut down uh so it was originally in google plus and then once google plus was being retired it ended up getting migrated into the youtube live section of youtube and again there was a lot of different features in there because it just tried to make a video conference so to speak broadcast really easy you could have title bars at the bottom uh you would have a little video thumbnail of all the different users. For those of you who have watched a live show from time to time to time when I'm not available to produce a show, Hangouts on Air is generally what we fall back to. And then in the posted version, I fancy it up a little bit to look more like our regular show. Well, it is going away. Hangouts on Air appears to be leaving. You actually want to go to www.geeks.link slash HOA. That's for Hangouts on Air geeks.link slash HOA. It'll take you to a bit of an article that I posted on the Gunna Geek site yesterday because YouTube has started to put uh, banners up in different locations that Hangouts on Air is going away by the end of 2019. No specific date. They've just in one spot, I think it says the end of the year. The other says end of 2019. Could be tomorrow. Could be January 31st or December 31st. We just don't know when it's going to be. But if you are somebody who uses Hangouts on Air, you might want to know that it might be going away. Chris Farrell also tried to do a little bit of digging to see if the Hangout video was going to be around because we've heard different things as well about Hangouts. Apparently, Hangout. we talked a while ago how Hangouts was being retired, but there might be a integration to the, I think it's the G Suite version 
We don't know. We don't know. And Chris, you tried to do a little digging. And my understanding is Google called you up personally and gave you the dirt, right? No, that is not at all what happened. Sadly, we have we have no sway like that. But <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. Google's they use their Uber Google trebuchet to sling dirt at Chris. <laughs> there you go. So I did do some asking around on Twitter to see if anyone knew what was going on. No one seemed to indicate. I also did some Google searching. But from what I can tell, and of course we're awaiting confirmation, is Hangouts on Air goes away, but potentially the Hangouts portion of Google Hangouts might be there so you can still video talk with people but not pushed out to YouTube. And here's the problem is they've got this service that everyone was using to have up to, what, 12 people chatting at one time. It really hasn't been replaced very well yet because they tell you to go to like youtube.com slash webcam. That's great. You can use one person. You can theoretically do a Google Duo call, but that only works for people that have installed the Duo app on their cell phone to then connect a telephone number for Google to look things up. But there's no way to broadcast it. So there's really no equivalent product to Hangouts on Air that Google has that's out there. So I'm sure a lot of people are going to be scrambling. I got to say that uh, over on Better Podcasting, that's the podcast podcast show that SP and I do. Uh, we got many episodes that are going to be stale now because uh, mm -hmm. we have often talked about how if you're going to try a video that uh, Hangouts on Air was the easy, easy place to start. I know, Chris, you started your podcasting that way because it was easy for you to to make a podcast through Hangouts on Air. Still use it actually. We've just put a bunch of video elements around it. So yeah, I am currently exploring new solutions, and we will see on Sunday if my PC blows up when I try and use one of those alternatives. Yay! A Kaboom. blow up PC. Can is there any way you can take video of your PC as you're podcasting? So if it does blow up, we'd have footage of that. So I will take my laptop and connect webcam to it and point the webcam at my PC while we're doing it and put it on a separate stream. You can find that at. Twitch.tv slash Chris's Exploding Computer. I don't know. You can also find it at Twitch.tv slash Chris Exposes Himself because I believe your computer is near your legs and you don't wear pants when you podcast. I wear shorts. I mean, so you get to see a little leg again. <laughs> Could you please shave your legs if you're going to do that? I'm told I have nice calves, so you guys can enjoy that, I guess. Chris, what else do we have in the extra extra this week? <laughs> so let's step back in time. Six months go back to Gonna Geek 270 where I believe it was in our extra extra segment there that we talked about the fact that Ikea was going to be releasing smart blinds. And I think they were saying April 1st, 2019. Now we did find out later those did get delayed indefinitely. We didn't know why other than the fact that Ikea said through their spokespeople, we're trying to improve the firmware so that there's more capabilities at launch. We do know that these smart blinds were supposed to work with Amazon voice services, Apple voice services, because I don't want to say her name and the Google assistant. You'd be able to tell to put the blinds up, blinds down. Ikea did announce that prices would range between $129 to $179 per set of blinds, which is much cheaper than most other smart blind alternatives you see out there. There's been a lot of demand and we all went, when are we going to find out when these blinds are coming out? Well, Ikea did announce only the blackout variant of these blinds will be coming out. They're called the Fjörter Shades, I think. I probably screwed that up. If I did, let me know. And they'll be releasing on October 1st, 2019. That's correct. October 1st, 2019. You will be able to buy your smart blinds if you want. I am totally on board with this, like I talked about six months ago, because I want to be able to set up a schedule so that when the sun is just blasting the front side of my house, 
I can have the blinds go down to hopefully help keep my house a little cooler. And then in the evening, retract the blinds back to their normal position. I am totally in for one to two sets of these to fit my giant front window. So look for an update sometime in late October, assuming I get them to let you know how my IKEA smart blinds are working. Wait a minute, Chris. Did you just say that at night when you're naked and walking around in the middle of the night that you're going to... I don't believe I said that part. ...your blinds up? You, you did. You said you're going to lift your blinds up at night. And previously, we have established that you walk around naked in the middle of the night. So, dude, keep the blinds closed. <laughs> Wait, where's your sourcing on that? Uh, it's Kenny Geek, episode 232. Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> Uh, I have to say that one of the reasons why I'm interested in the smart blinds is exactly what you said, the the uh, hot summer sun coming in. And I have a living room window that faces the sun first thing in the morning. And the thing is, it's actually above the main window. It's this it's a smaller window, but it's wide enough that a it lights things up at like five in the morning. It's the point that the kids wake up. Right. But B. The thing is that heat that comes through there is incredible, but because it's above the window, it's not convenient to put anything manual in there. You're not going to reach up every time. It's just not convenient at all. And I would love to have this for that exact reason. Well, the, the problem you're still going to have is these are battery powered, so you'll have to go replace batteries occasionally unless you can jury rig up. And I'm sure someone's going to make them some kind of solar panel you can mount on the front side of these that keeps those rechargeable batteries powered. Look for someone to make it via Kickstarter or put some kind of blueprint out there. There'll probably be an extension option as well, like to extend that battery pack, or if not, you know, it's it's still not terrible, especially because for my purposes, it's probably largely going to be in the summer. So really, like if the battery is dead over the winter, I probably wouldn't care that much. So I, I'm still hoping that this comes up to IKEA Canada. Unfortunately, again, you know, Canada is very close to the States, but international is international and not all products come to the chain, the chain in Canada. And that's the same with Ikea. So who knows? We will see because I would love to get one of these. And Chris Farrell, uh, if if you do get these in there, I know you said you're not going to open them at night. Um, you want to walk around naked, no, naked and stuff like me. that. SP is going to hack your stuff and open it. He's already got a camera in my house. Why does he need to hack my blinds? Well, he wants to expose you to the world. Oh, well, joke's on you. I've never really worried about whether blinds are open or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's I my kid. point. I kid. And finally, in the extra extra, this one's really exciting for all of you, uh, you TNG fans. Those of you who just have said to yourself, you know what was missing for many seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation? Wesley Crusher. Wesley Crusher was missing. Well, speaking to Metro.co.uk, Will Wheaton said, it's been over 30 years since we did Next Generation, and in a way, I feel like we had our time when we did our thing, and it's time to make room for new people, new characters, and new stories. All of that being said, I would love the opportunity to work with them again. It would be like going home. Chris Farrell, aren't you excited that Will Wheaton's open to the idea of revisiting Wesley Crusher? <laughs> the last movie he was in it it didn't make sense because he was supposed to be a traveler traveling the galaxy and magically he's in Starfleet magic somehow but I guess <laughs> it's possible he could come back we do have the Star Trek Picard series coming out at the end of the year there are rumors that some members of the next gen cast might make an appearance honestly Wesley Crusher is not who I'm wanting to see back on the small screen 
not because it's any slight on Will. I just don't care about the character in comparison to I'd rather see what's up with Worf now or what happens with B4 slash Data after the last movie. I would enjoy being with Will in person, you know, hanging out with him, possibly having a drink, whatever, mm-hmm. playing a game Agreed. with him, something like that. However, I have to disagree with you a little bit. Will Wheaton is directly responsible for you not caring about his character on Next Generation. That was all him. <laughs> it's also the writer's fault, too. Well, I mean, he let... <laughs> He intentionally the writers left. ones that made him the Deus Ex Machina that solved everything. <laughs> well, okay, there's a little bit of that, but I mean, he just got frustrated and and left, or he was going through his teen rebellion phase, or something like that. He could have successfully lived out that show as Wesley Crusher, as the normal, and not as Traveler Crusher, whatever that meme is called. I will blame Will for that. You know, here, here, I, I won't actually because there, there are some things behind the scene that he, uh, apparently it was not a very good phase for him because of sort of everything surrounding it, and I think the way he was received and things like that, and and I think that I think that he left because of poor writing. So I, I disagree a little bit. Um, I think that this events that he, it's been a while since I read that article, but I believe that there was. He, the flack that he got was really, really hard on him, and so that was a big mo- motive to get away from the character, and so why was there flack? Because of poor writing, right? So that's sort of my logic on it. However, with that said, I put this entirely in here as as just a laughing point, because I don't want to see I don't want to see Wesley Crusher come back to the Star Trek universe. I don't want to see that character back. But you know what? Uh, I, you were right. He magically showed back up somehow really weirdly in a non- canon fashion and uh yeah i i would love to see him not come back to star trek and so i just wanted to put this in here and it's probably not going to happen because the rest of the article said all of that being said i would love the opportunity to work with them again and then it continued on uh, you know that's part i read out but it continued on and said it would be like going home i think that could be a lot of fun to revisit the character but i just don't see that happening so there you go that's what was said more than likely he will be the last one alive from the crew of the Enterprise D. Uh, is there anybody? Yet? You know what? Uh, what about the per- people that played the young Rolaren and the young? Who else was it that uh, ended up getting miniaturized? Jean-Luc Picard. Jean-Luc Picard and right. and, yeah, but they weren't season regulars. That's, that's true. That's fair enough. Was there any you other? Have I- the guy who played Alexander Rosenko then. You know what? No, you'll have. He wasn't um, a regular. You'll have uh, O'Brien and Keiko's daughter. She wasn't Which really a regular. I don't know she if was she Deep was Space a regular Nine. or not, but D Space Nine, yeah. Was Will Wheaton actually a regular? He yeah. was for the first three seasons. Was he? I think oh, okay. he was. Yeah. Three or four. Yeah. I thought he was featured. Okay, he, he, got to, he missed like the ideal time, which was like best of he was there for best of both worlds and stuff, but like season five, when I thought it was at its peak, I don't think he was there anymore for season five. That's when everything seemed to be clicking. And I'm probably misremembering. And if that's the case, feel free to send your hate mail to JS at gunnageek.com. And you can tell, say, how out of touch Chris is with Star Trek history. And he needs to get his S together to know what's going on again. I apologize. I think we should make it clear, by the way. When we say send uh, it to JS at gunnageek.com for new listeners and viewers, that's because we used to have a co host on here named Jean Sebastien. And he always encouraged sending the email to him directly. So he's like, just send it to me directly, JS at gunnageek.com. 
it's not like I redirected that. The hate mail still goes to him. It's up to him to forward <laughs> it to us. So, so it's still, you know, I don't get it. But uh, we'll make that very clear. So if you would like to tell us all about why you like Will Wheaton or why you don't like Will Wheaton, get, come by live on Mondays. We'll be back to a regular schedule pretty quick here. We'll absolutely, uh, July, get back to a regularly irregular schedule. Now we're re- regularly irregular. But come by on Mondays. But that's going to go ahead and wrap it up for this show. So for episode number 291 of the official geek.com show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying, Will Wheaton, do not come back to Star Trek. MSP saying, weirdly enough, right now, my mother is closer to Steven than she is me. That's true. I'm Chris Farrell saying, hey, Adam Savage, if you're hiring, send me a message. I'm game. <laughs> All right. <laughs> bye. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. I'm talking to your son right now. Yeah. I'll see you in a Hi, second. Mom. checking out another episode of the official gunageek.com show if you like the show please give us a five-star review in apple podcasts or a thumbs up on youtube you can always join us for our live recording sessions which stream mondays at 8 45 p.m eastern at www.geeks.live and remember you can find our full back catalog at gunageek.com forward slash show If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunnageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.